Y'all heard about, uh, read a story about a couple, they'd been married 50 years, DeWitt, and uh, they, yeah, uh-oh, <laughs> yeah, they were having this big reunion, this celebration for their 50-year anniversary, and one of their family members came up and said, my star said 50 years, that's a long time. She said, what's the secret to your success? And Abe, the husband, <laughs> looked at the fellow and says, well, says, we got to go all the way back to our, our honeymoon if you want to know the truth, said on our honeymoon after the wedding, we rode off on horseback and said uh, we got a mile down the road on that horse, me and, my, me and my wife, and the horse just stopped, John. So my wife dismounted the horse and walked over in front of the horse and looked at the horse square and eye and said, that's one. Got back on the horse and that horse just got right up and off down the road it went. Said it went another mile and the thing stopped again. Wife did the same thing. She got off the horse, walked around in front of that horse and said, that's two. Got back on the horse and down the road they went. Went two more miles and finally that horse did the same thing. Said the wife got down and she walked in front of that horse and said, that's three. Reached down and pulled out a revolver and shot the horse graveyard dead. Said the horse fell right out from under me. I looked at her and I said, honey, what in the world are you doing? You can't shoot our horse like that. Have you lost your mind? She turned to me and looked me square in the eye and said, That's one. (laughs) Well, if you have your Bibles this morning, join me in 1 Corinthians chapter 9. We took a little break and uh, had a great Bible conference. If you missed that, let me encourage you to go online to our past uh, sermons and Check out our Bible study in uh, Joshua chapters 1 through 4 with Dr. Danny Lanier. He did a great job, and what a joy it was to have him with us. And thank you for loving him the way that you did. But here we find ourselves back in 1 Corinthians chapter number 9. And remember, the overarching theme for this entire book is commitment. To be more committed to Jesus than anything else. The church at Corinth were committed to many, many different things. And we went through many of those things already. And now we find ourselves in chapter 9 where Paul has been talking about this issue of Christian liberty and being committed to Jesus Christ by exercising our Christian liberty properly. Now in this particular passage of Scripture in 1 Corinthians chapter 9, it's a very lengthy passage. I'm going to run it all the way down to verse number 27 this morning. I'm going to get through this whole thing. And the reason why... It is because this passage of Scripture is really difficult on preachers that, are, that do expository-style preaching. And I'll be honest with you, there's no correction needed here in the church in this area. So what area are you talking about? I'm talking about in the area of taking care of your pastor and your staff financially. That's what Paul's going to deal with. Paul's going to deal with taking care of pastors financially. You see, Paul did not receive an income. He was a tent maker. He was bivocational. And there's a reason why he was bivocational. But Paul, he paints the picture and he pleads the case uh, that we as full-time Christian pastors and Christian workers should be supported and taken care of by the church. And the whole thing about uh, Paul and writing it at this particular moment in time in chapter 9 is that he's exercising his Christian liberty. Uh, And that's why he puts it underneath this uh, section of Scripture. So we'll walk through this uh, this morning, and I hope that it'll be an encouragement, and it'll be applicable from this perspective. 
Not only does Paul tell the church that they need to take care of their pastor financially as well as the staff, but Paul also has to respond to some criticism that he was getting. They were criticizing Paul, saying, you're not really an apostle. You don't really deserve to get paid. And there were all these different things that they were saying. So he had to respond to that. And so that's kind of the applicable approach that I'm taking from this passage this morning is how do you and I, as born-again children of God, respond to criticism? You ever been criticized? Well, I've been criticized before. I've got a reputation of being uh, an evangelistic preacher, in particular when it comes to funerals. Um, back in, in Carroll County, when I was uh, ministering there, uh, the, they would call me on several occasions to do, church, to do a, a funeral, that someone that I did not know, uh, whatever the case may be, because they knew I was going to be evangelistic in my approach, and I was going to give an opportunity for people to be saved. One of our church members in particular went home to be with Jesus, and they had a family mem- member that was a pastor at another denomination in Carroll County, and uh, he was three times my age. I was 25 at the time. And uh, he pulled me off to the side. And I'm telling you what, he gave me the what for as to why I should not give a gospel invitation at a funeral. And he told me some things. I mean, just really scolded me. Now, this was just minutes before the funeral was to take place. Him and I were sharing this funeral. And man, he criticized me up one side and down the other. And really, the bottom line was he just simply said, said this, that, I don't expect for you to give an invitation during this time. Well, let me just say this. I don't answer to him. I answer to God. And God has told me as far as the Scriptures is concerned, and when I say God told me, I'm talking about the Word of God has spoken truth into my life. And the Bible tells us that we're to share the gospel. And then sharing the gospel, I don't care where I go, everywhere that I go, I share the gospel of Jesus Christ. If I have a platform, then I'm going to share the gospel. There have been some places that have only invited me one time. I, I mean, really, one time. That's all I get. And so I'm not trying to make anybody mad. I'm, I, my personality's not mean or ugly or, or whatever the case may be, but I'm just wanting to, to, to preach the truth. I'm going to tell you this. I'm glad I didn't listen to the criticism of that man that day because when I stood up and preached, I preached the gospel of Jesus Christ at that funeral and gave a good old-fashioned gospel invitation, and five people gave their heart to Jesus Christ. Now, listen, I'm going to tell you, there are going to be some people in your life that are going to criticize you. They're going to criticize you. If you're a born-again child of God, you get ready. They're going to criticize you. Here's the question. How do I handle it? How do I handle that criticism? And in handling that criticism, how am I going to respond to that criticism? So let me give you three ways Paul did handle this criticism and how he responded to this. And I hope that it'll be an encouragement to you. There are three of them. Number one, the first one I want to show you is if you're going to respond to criticism, what you need to do first is you need to declare the truth. Declare the truth. That's found in these first six verses. Let's look at them together if we could. Paul says, am I not an apostle? Am I not free? Have I not seen Jesus Christ our Lord? Are not my work, are you not my work in the Lord? If I be not an apostle unto others, yet doubtless I am to you. For the seal of mine apostleship are ye in the Lord. My answer to them that do examine me is this. Have we not power to eat and drink? Have we not power to lead about a sister, a wife, as well as other apostles, and as the brethren of the Lord and Cephas? Or I only and Barnabas, have not we power to forbear working. Now let me stop right there. 
Because here in this section of Scripture, Paul is declaring truth in regards to the criticism that he has gotten about being an apostle. And in doing so, you'll find here in this text, now there's a lot of them, but I want to point them out really quickly to you. We find in this text there are eight things. There are eight, uh, uh, what am I trying to say here? There are eight things in Paul's life that he's going to point to to show that he is an apostle. What do you mean? Let me just show them to you if I could. Paul is going to answer this question and declare the truth, number one, on his apostleship. Look at verse 1. He asked this rhetorical question, am I not an apostle? What Paul was saying here is, do I not have a message from God that I brought to you? Was I not ordained by God to come to you? Did I not see the risen Lord myself with my own eyes? Was I not called out of the world and came to you as a messenger of God? It's a rhetorical question. Of course he had. This church would have never existed had Paul not come and opened this church as a church planner. He first of all declared the truth of his apostleship. Number two, he's going to say something else about that in a moment. Number two, he also declared the truth about his appointment. Look at verse one again. He says, am I not free? Now remember the freedom here is in which we are talking about in this era was that the church at Corinth thought freedom was doing whatever you want. No, that's not freedom. That's not true biblical Christian freedom. That is called hedonism. Hedonism says you can do whatever you want regardless, regardless of the consequences. It is a dualism type of philosophy. What do you mean by dualism? It's simply saying that you can do whatever you want to to this flesh as long as you don't hurt your spirit. But here's the problem. Whatever you do in the flesh will affect your spirit. And so, listen, true Christian freedom is not doing whatever you want. That's hedonism. True Christian freedom is knowing you can do whatever you want, but choosing to do the righteous thing. And Paul says, the appointment of God's freedom upon my life is the same appointment of God's freedom upon your life. We are appointed to be free, and this freedom results in living righteous lives. Number three, there's a third truth that he declares. He declares a truth on his authenticity. On his authenticity, what do you mean? Look at verse number one uh, in the third question that he asks. He says there in the text, have I not seen Jesus Christ our Lord? Have I not seen Jesus? There's an authority that he's speaking of here that something happened in his life that gave him authority, if you would, in regards to authenticating, if you will, who he is in Jesus Christ. And this authentication is is talking about his conversion. It's his conversion. I was convert- you remember Paul's conversion? Who was he before he was Paul? He was Saul. And remember as he was riding that horse, uh, we find that the Holy God came down and knocked him off that horse, changed his name. He had an experience with Jesus Christ. It was an authentic experience, and he got saved. Let, let me ask you this. I know I messed it up, but you keep hanging in there with me. You're going to get it here in just a second. The point is, is that his conversion was authentic. And because his conversion is authentic, you and I can say our conversions are authentic as well. What about your conversion? You remember the day you got saved? March 22nd, 1988, 14 years of age, sitting in a Southern Baptist church, hearing a pastor preach a message that I can't tell you what his points was, but he gave a good old-fashioned gospel invitation. The Holy Ghost jumped on me to such a capacity I could not do anything but say, here I come, Lord. And I said, look out. Y'all got to get out of my way. You move over. Get out of the way. Bless God. And I went down front and gave my hand to my principal, and I gave my heart to Jesus Christ. It was an authentic relationship with Jesus Christ, and 
and I've never got over it since. That's what he's talking about here. It was authentic. Then, then, watch. Then we see there was this authorization here. There was an authority that came in the latter part of verse number one. Let me show it to you here. Here it is right here. He says, and are not ye my work in the Lord? If I be not an apostle unto others, yet doubtless I am to you. For the seal of mine apostleship are ye in the Lord. He simply says this. In regards to the authority that's been given to him, he says, look, you are the result of my salvation. I got saved and I answered the call of God on my life. And as I came to you, I was authorized by God to be a church planter. And through that authorization, I have been converted. I have seen this church established. And if there's anybody, anybody that knows that I'm an apostle, it ought to be you. If there's anybody that knows I'm a God-called man, it ought to be you. Dear friend, when it comes to the relationship that I have with you as your pastor, if anybody knows Jesus, you ought to say, my pastor knows Jesus. My pastor's been changed by the power of Jesus Christ. My pastor is in the Word of God. My pastor loves the Word of God. And my pastor loves to see lost people saved. That's what Paul's saying. And that comes from the authority that's given to him by the Holy Spirit. Now watch this. Watch what he does here in verse number 5. He also declares another truth. He declares a truth in the arena of apologia. Now, what in the world is apologia? Apologia is a Greek word, and it means defense. Let me show you where it's at in verse number 3. He says there in verse number 3, My answer to them that do examine me is this. If you have your pen, pencil, lipstick, or mascara, I would underline that word, answer. The word answer here in the text is the Greek word apologia. He says, I'm coming to give a defense to those that are coming against me in my apostolic authority. I have been called by God, he says, and my answer to them that say that I have not been called by God is several fold. And he just kind of marches on. I put it down as number six, but watch what he does here in verse number four. He talks about his appetite. He's going to declare a truth in response to his apostolic authority concerning his appetite. He says, have we not power to eat and drink? He says, we, we, we like to eat, we like to drink. Is there a legitimate right that I have as a pastor, as a born-again child of God that is functioning as a church planter to eat at the expense of the church? Do I have the right to receive support from the church that I founded? Of course, the answer to that is yes. But we also know that in doing so, Paul would have refused that. So we got to understand, remember, this is a corrective letter. This letter that Paul wrote is nothing more than a letter of correction to some questions that they had. And the questions that they had concerning his, his apostolic authority is just simply saying this. You should be sending me a check every week, but you're not. But that's okay. I'm not going to ask for it. But all I'm saying is, i got to eat too i got to eat too. I've got an appetite that I've got to feed. But watch this. Not only does he talk about his appetite, he declares the truth of his affirmation. Look at what he says in verse number 5. He says, Have we not power to lead about a sister, a wife, as well as other apostles, and as the brethren of the Lord, and Cephas? He brings Peter into the mix. He says, You paying Peter? You're giving Peter something? He's affiliated with me. There's an affiliation with me and Peter. Uh, we're both ministers of the gospel of Jesus Christ. He provides for his family. 
I ought to be able to provide for mine. The church ought to make provision, help the pastor provide for his family. Now, let me say it again, because now that I'm halfway through this first point, it's about time for me to re-emphasize this ought to not be a correction for Maysville Baptist Church. I'm going to tell you something about this church. You take care of your pastor, and you take care of your staff. And for that, I'm greatly, greatly appreciative. I'm simply saying here, if somebody comes against you in regards to this area of making criticism towards you, you can apply the same principles that Paul applied here, and you can declare the truth. And the truth is that Paul was an apostle, that he was appointed by God, that there was this authenticity about him, and there was this authorization about him, and he was going to be uh, preaching the truth in defense of the gospel of Jesus Christ, which is an apologia. And because of that, there's a natural appetite that he has, not only to see people saved, but to feed his hungry soul so he doesn't starve to death. And there's this affiliation that he has if you would with Peter and the others and he says they take care of their kids they take care of their wife so should I and then we find in verse number 6 the final declaration of truth and that is declaring an appeal look at what he says in verse 6 if you would he says or I only and Barnabas have not the power to forbear working he says are we the only two it's a question by which ask them will you not meet the need that we have in our particular situation. He appeals to the the Corinthians with the fact that Paul and Barnabas did not take advantage of the right that they had to support the support of the church. Well, although they could have taken advantage of that, they understood that if they did, they might be questioned on their apostolic authority. And yet they didn't, and they were questioned anyways. So Paul declares the truth of his apostleship by saying, listen, I am who I am. Dear friend, listen, by way of application, you are who you are. I am who I is. (laughs) I know it's bad English, but it's good preaching. The bottom line is simply this. I'm not Adrian Rogers. I'm not Billy Graham. I'm not Johnny Hunt. I'm not David Sharpton. I'm Shane Robertson. And because I'm Shane Robertson, God has equipped me to preach the truth to you. And you support that. And to that, I'm very grateful. So when someone criticizes you, You begin by declaring the truth. Number two, let me give you a second thing very quickly. The second thing we find in verses 7 through 14 is when someone criticizes you, not only should you declare the truth, but you should also defend the facts. You should be able to defend the facts, and that's what Paul does. In verses 17 through 14, there are some facts that Paul had to defend. Uh, What were the facts that he defended? Let me show them to you. Number one, the first fact that he defended was that at the church at Corinth, their laborers got paid. Look at verse 7. He says, who goeth a warfare uh, any time at his own charges? Who planteth a vineyard and eateth not the fruit thereof? Or who feedeth a flock and eateth not the milk of the flock? Paul says, if you hire a laborer, you see a laborer out there, And that laborer is a soldier, a farmer, a shepherd. They all partake uh, of the rewards of their labor. They work hard, and because they work hard, uh, there's a customary thing that takes place there in your community, and you pay them. You pay their workers, and you pay them because of their diligent labor in their calling. He's saying Christian workers are the same. They're working the spiritual garden. They're working the spiritual flock. 
They're fighting the spiritual war, and they need to have payment as well. Not only does he defend that fact, he defends a second fact in verses 8 through 11. He defends the fact that the law gives this same direction. The law gives direction. In verses 8 through 11, Paul is saying here that even the law of God supports the practice of paying Christian workers. Look at what the scripture says. Let's look at it together. Verse 8. He says, say I these things as a man or not the law the same also. He says, doesn't the law of God say the same thing I'm telling you today? Look at verse number 9. For it is written in the law of Moses, thou shalt not muzzle the mouth of the ox that treadeth out the corn. Doth God take care of the oxen? Or saith he it all together? For our sakes, for our sakes, no doubt this is written, that it may, that he that ploweth should plow in hope, and that he that thresheth in hope should be partakers of this hope. If we have sown unto the spiritual things, is it a great thing that we should reap your carnal things. Paul is saying here that even the law of God supports the practice of paying workers. He actually quotes, if you would, in this particular passage of Scripture, Deuteronomy chapter 25 in verse 4. He says you don't muzzle the oxen when he's on the threshing floor. You let him go on and get a little bit every now and then. He gets strength and he keeps going and he gets a little bit of benefit from that as well. Uh, This shows the sharing of the harvest even with the animals. He says, now why did God write that? Did God write that because he cares about the ox? Well, of course God cares about the ox, but there's a deeper meaning there. That's why Paul says in the text, he says, no, listen. He says, he saith it all together. It's for our sake. As a matter of fact, look at verse 10. He saith, it all together for our sakes, for our sakes, no doubt. He says there's no doubt that Deuteronomy chapter 25 in verse number 4 is for us on this day, for our sakes it was written, so that it would teach us that we don't need to muzzle the preacher while he's on the threshing floor preaching the gospel of Jesus Christ. We are to make sure that he's able to take care of himself and he's able to take care of his family. Then verse 11, Paul simply says here that this spiritual work uh, that we do needs to be compensated with earthly funds. Again, look at verse number 11. It's quite fascinating how he says it. He says, if we've sown into you spiritual things, uh, is it a great thing that we should reap your carnal things? He's just simply, carnal things, talking about the fleshly benefits of working. He says, you've gained money. He says, we've worked too. We work too. Now, why is he saying it in this such capacity? Remember, Corinth was a mecca uh, of everything. I mean, it's a hodgepodge. I mean, everybody that was anybody was there. And it just had all these different types of cultures. It was absolutely incredible. All these temples were there. It was amazing. It was what we consider today to be the Las Vegas of Bible times. It was a wreck. I mean, it was a mess. It was beautiful, but there were some major issues, some major problems. And so what people did for entertainment back in Bible days is quite fascinating. You and I might go see a movie, or you and I might uh, go to dinner and maybe take a walk, or maybe we'll go to the theater and watch a play, whatever the case may be. Not in Bible days. They would go, when they would go pay and hear a philosopher, an orator, they would hear, stand up there and listen to somebody uh, philosophize. And so, in doing so, the question was asked, well, how do they get paid? How in the world do these philosophers get paid? Well, they get paid one of four ways. Number one, they charged for their teaching. 
And those philosophers that charged for their teaching, they, they didn't get a lot of people to come out and hear them. They just wouldn't come. I mean, they just, no, why should I go hear you when I can go hear somebody else for free? So that was one way they had charged, but it didn't work out too well. So number two, the second thing they did was they started gathering donations. They'd take up an offering. Uh, now, it wasn't like a church offering. It was a donation. I mean, hey, give me, give me some money. I spoke to you. You heard my voice, so give me some, some cash. So they did that. Or number three, here's the third one. Depend, they depended upon a wealthy benefactor. Somebody would sponsor them. You know, they would stand out there in their, uh, in their, their toga, and, and I guess they'd have a label, this, this philosophy brought to you by 7-Eleven. I don't know. Uh, uh, that was the way they'd do it. And then number three, they, or number four, they were bivocational. Bivocational. And then we know this is what Paul was. Paul was bivocational. And there's a reason why Paul was bivocational, and we'll get to that here in just a few minutes. But Paul is simply saying this, that the orators are vastly different than the preacher's. The preachers are preaching the gospel of Jesus Christ and they're preaching for a decision for people to come to know Christ as Savior. Your philosophers are up there just philosophizing, telling us what they think. And it's not about what we think, it's about what the Lord says. That's what he's he's talking about here. So this is why Paul told Timothy in 1 Timothy chapter 5, in verse 17, he says this. Let the elders that rule well be counted worthy of double honor, especially they who labor in the word and labor in doctrine. That's why Paul said that. Paul says, your ministers, your preachers of the gospel, he called them elders here in this text, but it's a reference to pastors. He says, your pastors are coming in, they're preaching for decision, wanting to expand the kingdom of God. They're worthy of double honor. He tells them that their law gives this direction. Number number three, let's move on. We've got to hurry. We're talking about defending the facts. The third defense that Paul gives in regards to the facts is that their legacy guaranteed giving. Look at verse 12. Look at verse 12. Their legacy guaranteed giving. He says, If others be partakers of this power over you, are not we rather? Nevertheless, we have not used this power, but suffer all things, lest we should hinder the gospel of Christ. He says, Your legacy points to the fact that others are receiving missionary offerings. They're receiving gifts from you, financial gifts. He says, but we're not. And we haven't brought it up. We haven't brought it up because we don't want to hinder the gospel. We're grateful for that. Uh, Really what Paul is saying is, all I want is a little bit of respect. Just a little bit. Just recognize that I'm God called man to do the work of God and to see God move to a compassion. It's not about me, Paul says. It's all about him. Paul is actually thinking about others here. He's thinking about the church, the pastor of the church at Corinth. He's thinking about Barnabas. He's thinking about all those other pastors that are serving around the city there in Corinth that are starving to death. Now remember, remember what's happening. There's a famine going on. There's persecution going on. And so Paul is really challenging the church to give. To give out of their hurt. Just because we're under financial pressure, watch this, doesn't mean that we need to stop giving. It is required of a steward, the Bible says, that a man be found faithful. That's another reason why Paul said that in Corinthians. Number four, let me, get, let me go to the fourth one, the defense of the facts. The locality demonstrated that they give. The locality demonstrated. Look at verse 13. Let me show you what I'm talking about. Follow me now. Keep, stay with me. He says, do you not know 
that they which minister about holy things live of the things of the temple, and they which wait at the altar are partakers with the altar. He's saying, look around the, the, the localness of where you're at. Y'all step outside on the church front porch, and I want you to look around the city. This, lo this locality of where we stand, there's a Jewish temple. Those Jewish temple priests are in there. They're getting their needs met. They're able to eat the food that comes off the altar. They're able to take the offerings that you've given to them and <clears throat> provide and supply for their family. Where you're located shows and proves the fact that you need to take care of your preacher. Number five, here's the, the fifth one. He's defending the facts. Here's the fifth and final fact in verse 14. The Lord promoted it. The Lord promoted it. Look at verse 14. He says, even so hath the Lord ordained that they which preach the gospel should live of the gospel. Paul simply says, those pastors that are preaching the gospel of Jesus Christ have been commissioned by God, Matthew 10, 10, and Luke 10, 17, that they are worthy of their hire. They should live of the gospel. That He's just simply saying they ought to make a living wage, a living wage when it comes to preaching the gospel. Paul, in this section, defends the facts. Paul, in that previous section, declared the truth. And then we come to this last section very quickly. And y'all are doing such a good job listening. We're already at point number three. The third thing he does is he depends upon God. Now let me recap real quick, very quickly. Now watch this. What do you do and how do you react and how do you respond when criticism comes your way? When we look at Paul's life and as he's correcting the church at Corinth on their giving in regards to their pastor and taking care of their pastor. Number one, the first thing he did was he declared the truth. The criticism that he was getting, he declared the truth. Number two, he defended the facts. And then number three, he depended upon God. That's verses 15 through 27. Paul finishes up his teaching by answering the question why he did not personally take payment in regards to this. And it had a lot to do with his dependence upon God. Let me show you what I mean. Three things here Paul says about depending upon God. Number one, he talks about his calling. Paul's calling. Look at what the Bible says in verse 15, 16, 17, and 18. He says, but I have used none of these things. He simply says this. I hadn't made a big deal about it. The only reason why I'm speaking of it here is because you asked me the question. And I'm, and I'm telling you. I'm dealing with the question you asked me. You brought it up, not me. And he says, I didn't take any of these things. and didn't make a big deal about it. He says, neither have I, in verse 15, written these things that it should be done so unto me. For it were better for me to die than that any man should make my glory void. For though I preach the gospel, I have nothing to glory of. For necessity is laid upon me. Yea, woe is me if I preach not the gospel. I'm going to tell you right now. Verse 15 and 16, I'm telling you, the Holy Spirit of God points the finger in the eye of those church preachers that say, all I want is your money. Look at what he says in verse 17. For if I do this thing willingly, I have a reward. But if against my will, a dispensation of the gospel is committed unto me, what is my reward then? Verily, that when I preach the gospel, I may make the gospel of Christ without charge, that I abuse not the power in the gospel. Here's what Paul's saying, church. Paul says, look, 
I'm going to stand in the gap for every other preacher that's out there. I'll take it. I will stand up. I'll take it all. Don't you pay me a dime, but you better take care of the rest of the preachers that are out there. Now, why could Paul say such a thing? Well, remember, remember, Paul had the gift of singleness. He had the gift of singleness. Paul was single. And he was called to be a church planter. This morning at the 930 service, we had a church planter in here. And that church planter, when he planted that church, didn't have anything. I mean nothing, just him and his wife. And it was easy for them to move and to be established. He didn't have a full family to take care of. Paul didn't even have a wife. And he says, I like it in regards to that because God's gifted me that way. And he's gifted me to such a capacity that I'm comfortable with this. I'm able to move from location to location. You're not going to get a letter from me every month telling, telling. I'm not going to tell you where I'm at every month. I'm just telling you. In regards to the compensation, my calling is not to be a pastor. My calling is to be a church planter. I'm going to make disciples. Paul, it really in essence what we see here in verses 17 18, uh, and 17 and 18 uh, it, we see as if Paul says you know what, if I get paid, if you pay me I'm liable to get comfortable and just kick back. And I don't want to get comfortable and kick back. I want to keep pressing forward for Jesus Christ. Paul says that is my calling. Now let me, let me say this if I could about Shane. My calling, God's called me to be your pastor. I love to put our hands, if you would, in the arena of church plants. We want to support church planters. This church has planted a church um, up in, the, uh, in Seattle, uh, up in that area. We've helped plant a church up there. And um, I'm grateful for what's going on up there. I uh, want to take some trips up there to the church you planted, let you see what, what's going on there. But I'm telling you, so why, why haven't we heard much about it? I'm, I'm going to tell you why. Because God called me to be your pastor. My calling is to be your pastor. And in being your pastor, my calling, the calling that God's given us, given me for you, is to put ourselves under the Word of God and let the Word of God teach us. And to help us grow. And watch this. As we grow, as we, as we give ourselves to the authority of the Word of God, then God will raise up people in our church to take these ministries because God's put a calling on your life to be able to go further and take us further and do more for the gospel of Jesus Christ. I don't know about you, but I'm so grateful for the staff you've let me hire. I've got to thinking about the staff that I've been able to hire since I've been here. I'm grateful for our children's pastor. I'm so grateful for Chris Porter. Uh, we look up there and we regularly see Chris Porter up there. You know why Chris Porter's regularly in the baptismal pool? Because he's regularly winning people to Jesus. Regularly winning. So, man, he's like shooting a fish in a barrel. Well, hey, that's God's calling on his life. Thank God. I'm grateful to God that we've got parents that will put them in a children's ministry. And I'm grateful to God i got confidence in the children's pastor that will see people come to know Jesus Christ as Savior and then get them in a new Christian's class and help educate them and disciple them and raise them up so that they'll know uh, that they need to be baptized. And thank God they get in there. That's his calling. You know, I can just go through every staff member and say that, that same thing. As a matter of fact, somebody in here, God is raising somebody up in here to do something in this church. You've got a calling on your life. And the reason why it's not getting done is because you hadn't answered the phone yet. It's ringing. You hear it ringing. I love it when the phone rings. Right there would be a good spot for somebody's phone to ring right there. <laughs> Paul's calling. I've got to finish. I'm out of time. Y'all, thank you for being patient with me. It goes by fast, doesn't it, Do It goes fast, doesn't it? Number, number two. Here's the second thing. 
Uh, Paul's depending upon God. He talked about his calling. And then number two, he's going to talk about his commission. His commission. Verses 19 through 23, Paul talks about the commission God gave to him. What is the commission? Remember the word commission. It's the word co-mission, partnership, commission from God, the partnership that God has with him. We find that in verses 19 through 23. He says, I become all things to all people. I love what he said here in verse 21. Let me show you that this is fascinating here. When he says, to them that are without the law as without the law. And then he says something parenthetically. Did you see what he said? He says there, being not without the law to God. But under the law under Christ. He's saying, what he's saying here is this. I'm not participating in hedonism. I'm not saying that I became those that did not have the law. I'm not telling you that I went into the strip joints and the bars to pull them out. That's not what he's saying. I didn't do that. He's no, I've got the law of Christ in my heart. There's a righteousness that I have to live by. He's, what he's saying is, I'm not afraid to talk to lost people. That's what he's saying. I'm not afraid to go to lost people. I'm not afraid to talk to those that are without the law about Jesus Christ and how they might be saved. That's his commission. We have a commission. What's our commission? Our commission is found in the Word of God, Matthew chapter 28. It's called the Great Commission. We're to go in all the world and preach the gospel. Number three. Here's the third and final point, and I'm going to close on this. Depending upon God, Paul talked about his calling. He talked about his commission. And here's number three. He talked about his crown. Verses 24 through 27. Uh, Probably one of the more controversial passages of Scripture in Corinth, but it it need not be. It doesn't need to be controversial. You see, because Paul's not talking about losing your salvation in this text. Uh, It would be totally out of character for him to speak of such a thing in the context of 1 Corinthians. Never before has he ever said said it, never before has he ever taught it. But here we find these words here in this passage of Scripture that he doesn't want to be a castaway. Paul is not saying that he'll lose his salvation. No, what he's saying here is that he doesn't want to lose the reward. He doesn't, watch this, he doesn't want to come in second place. He wants to come in first place. We remember this. He says, I know I'm going to finish the race. No, I'm going to finish the race. Finishing the race is salvation. We're all going to finish the race that have Jesus Christ as our Savior. Those of us that have the Holy Spirit inside of us, that that salvation that we have, we're going to finish the race. Here's the question. Are you going to get the reward? Paul says, I want the full reward. I want first place. And so what is Paul going to do to get his crown? What's he going to do to get this reward? Watch this. I love it. This is such a great passage of Scripture. Uh, It's almost like Paul's poking his finger in the eye of the Corinthians now. Watch what he does here. He says, I'm going to do four things to get the crown, to get first place. Number one, the first thing I'm going to do is I'm going to stay focused. Look at what he says in verse 24. He says, Know ye not that they which run in a race run all. But one receiveth the prize. He says, we all know that you're running. Only one person is going to get the prize. So I'm going to tell you what. You better be focused. Stay focused on the task. Dear friend, watch this. This world is not our home. Our home is in heaven. Don't lose focus of your home. Don't lose focus of the home. Home is where Jesus is. And I can't wait to get there. Number two. The second thing he does is he... Uh, it talks about his self-control. Look at verse 25. Oh, look here what he says. He says, And every man that striveth for the mastery of temperance is in all things. Now, they do it to attain a corruptible crown, but we an incorruptible. 
He says, we've got to understand and stay self-controlled to the fact that when we get praise, a little pat on the back, we've got to understand that we didn't serve here for that pat on the back. We're serving for that grand prize that we get when we see Jesus. So stay self-controlled. Today, we're going to have fun. Me and kids are going to have a good time. It's going to be wonderful. But keep your eye on the prize. What's the prize? Winning those kids to Christ. Winning those moms and dads to Jesus. Winning those people to our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Self-control. Number three. Here it is. got to hurry. I'm out, I'm out of time. Purposeful. Verse 26. Purposeful. He says, I therefore so run. Because I'm focused. Because I've got self-control. He says, I've got a purpose. I'm running straight and narrow. I'm running righteous. On purpose. Can I ask you a question? Are you living on purpose? Boy, I'm living on purpose. I'm going to be honest with you. I've had more fun by accident than the world's tried to have drinking and having a good time. I'm going to be honest with you. I have, I have had more fun on accident. I just can't help it. I can't help myself. Bless God, somebody has supplied the green room. I was having so much fun in between services. I know you didn't see me because I was back there resting. But somebody has brought a spread back there. I don't know if, if it's because uh, it's a pastor appreciation or what. But I, somebody brought some food back there. And man, I was on there by myself. I was a happy pastor. <laughs> Number four, I'm done. Finish. He's going to finish. Look at verse 27. Uh, verse, let me start in verse 26. He says, I therefore so run on purpose. Not as uncertainty so fight I. Not as one that beats the air. But I keep my body and bring it into subjection. Lest that by any means, when I have preached to others, I myself should be a castaway. He's using a metaphor here. This is metaphoric speech. When you take the Word of God and approach it from a literal perspective, you put the metaphors where the metaphors need to be. Here is what's called a metaphor. He's using this illustration before us, if you would. And he's just simply saying, look, I'm going to stay focused, and I want to finish strong. I don't want to be one of the carnages on the side of the road that says, you know what, he started off real strong, but he finished poorly. I think we could say it like this, if I can bring it up in the modern day. I think everybody in here would agree with me that Billy Graham finished strong. That's what Paul's saying. I want to finish strong. Can I ask you a question? How do you want to finish? How do you want to finish? Do you want to finish strong? If you want to finish strong, might I say this? Why don't we adopt Paul's philosophy? And why don't we stay focused? Why don't we stay self-controlled? Why don't we run on purpose? And let's finish strong. This morning, Paul didn't want to disqualify himself by not getting a reward. He knew he was going to finish the race. I'm going to finish the race. But I don't want to be disqualified. I don't want to not get a prize. And the prize that I'm striving for is not second prize. I want first prize. I want first place. Can I ask you a question? What place do you want? There's some here today that says, oh, bless God, I'll, I'll send a, settle for just finishing the race. I don't finish the race. You know what that tells me? That tells me you're tired. You need the refreshment of the Holy Spirit of God in your life. And you can get it by coming and just giving your life over to Jesus Christ. So I've already been saved. You may be saved, but you're not living in victory. We learned that this week. God wants you to be a victorious Christian believer. Maybe there's some things you need to let go of, Christian. 
You say, well, I, I don't mind. I, I don't want to be last place, but, you know, I'll take, I'll take being in the top ten. That's fine with me. You know what that tells me? You're undisciplined. You're undisciplined. It means you could do better if you try a little bit harder. What about your quiet time? Are you having it every day? What about your prayer time? Are you spending time with Jesus every day? If not, I want to challenge you. Get back in the race, man. All right, you got on the sideline, got a sip of water. Bless God, stop, wait, and get in there and start running. And then you might be here and you say, Oh, pastor, the deep down desire of my heart is I'm like Paul. I want first place. I don't want to just finish. I don't want to just be in the top ten. Bless God, I don't want to be in the top three. I want to be in the first place. Then here's the thing. Watch this. You run your race with all that you have. Who are you fighting against? The world, the flesh, and the devil. You run against the world, the flesh, and the devil. You may not can be Billy Graham. I know what you're thinking. Bless God, I can't be Billy Graham. Billy Graham came in first. Paul came. I can't do that. Billy Graham won his race with Billy Graham. You run your race with you. I'm telling you, you know when the devil comes against you and you get discouraged, you get downhearted, you get sad, you get lonely, you get... Put the devil back where he goes. Tell him to get back to hell. He doesn't have any authority over your life. Greater is he that's in you than he that's in the world. Stop, start living in victory and tell the devil to get out of here. You are somebody in Jesus. Let's finish strong. Let's bow for prayer. Maybe you're here this morning and maybe you want to finish strong, but here's the fact of the matter. You've never been in the race. And in order for you to get in the race, you've got to give your heart to Jesus Christ. Dear friend, this morning, I want to invite you to get in the race. So how might I do that? You've got to come to Jesus. From your heart to God's heart, here's what I'm going to ask you to do. Why don't you say something like this to the Lord right now? Why don't you say, Lord Jesus, I know I'm a sinner. I believe you died on the cross for my sin. And this morning, I ask you to save my soul. Thank you for saving me. In Jesus' name. Now, with our heads bowed and eyes closed, if you prayed that prayer, I want you to lift your hand up real high and say, I'm not ashamed to say I did that today. I asked Jesus to save my soul. I want to thank God for saving my soul. Just lift it up real high. It's all right. Don't be ashamed. You're in a safe place today. I prayed and asked Jesus to save my soul. Just lift it up real high. Thank you. You might be here today and you'd say, Pastor, I'm saved, but I'm not running as well as I should. You can say you're out of shape. You can say you got a cramp. Whatever you can say in your land. I'm not going to ask you to raise your hand. I'm going to ask you to come to the training table. Come to the altar. Come get right with God. Come make your plea to God. Please come to Jesus. Get back in the race. Heavenly Father, this is the message you've laid on my heart. In the name of Jesus, I pray you'd bless it. We love you. In Jesus' name.